Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Steph Tai, Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. We will discuss their article, Legalizing the Meaning of Meat, which is published in the, law, in the Loyola University Chicago Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Steph. Thanks for having me, Brian. My pleasure. I'm so glad your your paper was recommended to me because it was really interesting. Um, I've been hearing a lot about all these new changes in the kind of meat alternative industry, but didn't really know anything about them. And there were some fascinating, if sometimes horrifying, anecdotes in the article as well that we'll have to talk about because I just loved it, and I've been I can't help bringing them up with. With Mabel. <laughs> With Mabel. Um, but before we get to that, um, I was wondering if you could kind of take a big picture look at the subject matter of the article. Um, so, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what is the meaning of meat anyway, or, or rather historically, what did it mean to talk about meat? Well, in my article, I really explore how it's it's a fairly ambiguous term and much more ambiguous than um, one might think. That is, um, meat um, and the subject of meat as an area of litigation right now um, arises because um, the livestock industry um, has been arguing that meat should be a restricted term in labeling to only livestock-based meats. Um, it turns out, if you look at actual sort of old cookbooks, old recipes, you know, dating back to the 13th century, um, meat has been used as a term for um, a number of other types of products, right? Um, they probably didn't even characterize it as products at the time, but, you know, things that were sort of vegetarian substitutes usually used for religious re um, reasons that replaced um, in a meal the same thing that would have been there had it been livestock. So, um, so the... So in a way, meat has been used to mean, in my view, less of a livestock-based kind of term and more to mean its place in a particular type of meal. Well, maybe you could give some examples of kind of historical uses of meat that might not be familiar to us today, but that were common at the time. Yeah. So for instance, um, in China, there were a number of vegetarian substitutes, um, mostly because Buddhists um, did not eat. Some forms, under some forms of Buddhism, um, followers didn't eat livestock. Um, and so um, if you look at how they referred to these types of substitutes, they used meat terms for tofu, they used meat terms for um, seitan. Um, these were things which were referred to in way proteins, basically in ways using meat-related terms that were not necessarily containing meat. Um, same thing with, um, I think, jackfruit in some other countries. All of these things that we're seeing arise as substitutes now, it's not unusual in history to have been um, for people to have used meat-related terms for them. Are there historical examples of English-speaking countries that have used the word or concept of meat at least by some groups of people in a sort of way that might be less familiar or uh, are well-known today? 
Yeah. Um, when, when we had Adventists in the U.S. Um, rise and Seventh-day Adventists often don't eat livestock, um, the, there were many sort of substitutes for, say, burgers and things like that that were eaten by more livestock eating people. And um, terms such as nut meats um, were used quite frequently to refer to those kinds of products. So um, it's not just in sort of Chinese speaking, Asian speaking countries where meat related terms were uh, where meat related terms were used to refer to plant based products. Can you point to any kind of particular period or point in time where the kind of conventional contemporary meaning of meat in terms of what it designates kind of solidified or came into existence? I'm not sure that it really has solidified in that kind of way. I think the the difference is that the meat-related terms in reference to um, plant-based products were used primarily within um, vegetarian communities. That is, um, it wasn't in sort of the general commonplace um, lingo that meat-related terms were used for that, partly because people, you know, didn't really care. Um, and so when the use of words like nut burgers, nut meats, etc., were used, um, it, they were really in sort of more isolated pockets of the community. And what's different now, I think, and what spurred some of the litigation that I addressed um, in my article is that we're seeing more plant-based products and also to some extent insect-based products and maybe forthcoming cell-cultured meat products. Um, we're seeing more of that marketed towards people who aren't vegetarian. And thus, this language of meat is being used in such much more um, sort of broader societal context than in isolated sort of vegetarian communities. So maybe you could talk then a little bit about each one of those categories of kind of meat alternative products. Um, I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the kind of new genre of plant-based burgers. Maybe you could talk about how those have sort of interacted with the sort of meaning of the term meat used in relation to plant-based alternatives, but also, and one thing that I didn't really know anything about were these cultured and insect-based products too. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about the sort of plant-based products. Uh, one of the things that have really dramatically changed, I would say in the last five years is that now there are um, mass marketed plant-based products that really simulate fairly well. Um, livestock-based meats. So you see Impossible Burgers, um, um, Beyond Meat, those are just some examples of it, where the manufacturers have tried hard to really simulate the mouthfeel and texture and even the bloodiness of meat by using, um, you know, vegetable-based dyes and things. Um, and so that's been one area which has, I think, changed significantly such that even people who are um, omnivorous and not, you know, by way of either philosophy or religion, um, restricting themselves to plant-based diets. They're exploring these kinds of things, um, sometimes for environmental reasons, sometimes just for experimentation reasons. There are a lot of reasons, but it's starting to sort of cut into sort of the omnivorous kind of diet. So that's one thing that has been a big change. Um, with respect to the other categories, so insect-based meats, that's, that's, that really hasn't been marketed so much as meats yet. Um, the main mass marketed insect-based products are both flowers, like cricket flowers, and also um, um, sort of, you know, 
bars, but that's really just in the United States. In other countries, um, eating insects as a sort of core protein source um, has sort of taken the place of what we think of as livestock-based meats in diets too. Um, Cell cultured meats are really interesting. These are meats that actually come from animals originally in terms of their original cells, um, but they're grown basically in vats, in weight, in on things that are called lattices, um, in ways such that they can sort of end up simulating um, a meat that is cut out of an animal. And so that's yet another um, category that is arising now. And the the concern of many um, livestock producers is that that's going to cut right into their market share. Um, understandably so, because if you have something that is plant-based and it feels like a burger, people might buy it. Um, versus when things looked like, you know, they tasted substantially different, right? Like the lentil burgers were substantially different from a hamburger that if you really wanted the feel of a hamburger, you're not going to buy a lentil burger. The insect-based part of the paper was really kind of fascinating to me because I, mean, I knew that eating various kinds of insects was common in many different cultures, but I didn't really realize quite how widespread it was. And I must say there are some examples that I found quite surprising of insects that people were choosing to eat. Like which ones? Well, I, I'm thinking specifically of the reindeer. Oh, right, right. Yeah. No, There's there's been a lot of interesting histories of the use of um, insects that were in other animals um, to for consumption. And part of it was, you know, this sort of um, philosophy of not wasting things. Um, but part of it is sort of um, cultural adaptations to different types of tastes. Um, if you, I don't know how much you've eaten insects, but um, I've had like um, um, ant eggs and they're, they're its own things. They're like little tiny bursts of caviar, except that the caviar was made of pure butter. Um, and it has its own flavor and I can see it taking some kind of, um, very specific kind of unique place on a palate. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's strange because, you know, there's no particular reason to be shocked or surprised by it. And yet it just seems unusual, but I imagine that kind of unusualness could fade very easily. I mean, I guess it's not so different from eating like, you know, lobsters or crabs anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our cultural approaches to disgust um, change so much, either over time, but also from place to place. My parents, um, when my dad first moved to the United States for grad school, um, he came from Hong Kong. It was very unusual to ever see a steak. In fact, people didn't see steak. And when he saw a steak for the first time, he was actually revolted to see a big slab of meat all together at once because he was used to seeing it chopped up and stir fried. And that's just how you eat meat. Um, and so, um, so, you know, that, that's just an example to show the very um, cultural shaping of our reactions of disgust. Well, so in your paper, you talk about several instances of litigation and attempts to regulate the use of the term meat in relation to product labeling. I wonder if you could describe a couple of those and kind of talk a little bit about the genesis of those efforts and how the sort of back and forth between the livestock industry and the alternative meats industry has played out. Yeah, so many states have start um, have ended up promulgating regulations that restrict the use of the term meat, but also meat-related terms such as burgers, steaks, etc., only to sort of livestock-based kind of products. 
Um, these the impetus behind many of these statutes um, were from cattlemen's association, poultry manufacturers, things like that. Um, and you can see that in some of the legislative history of these statutes. Um, these, as you can imagine, were challenged under First Amendment kind of grounds, right? Because the plant-based um, mar- product producers um, understandably didn't want to have to sort of go through the process of both repackaging their products, but also go through um, what in a least American diet um, is a sort of diminishment of their products. That is, um, at least under the traditional American diet, we center the thing that we call meat on our plates, right? We don't generally have something that is, you know, you know, except for maybe, I mean, even with spaghetti, you have like spaghetti and meatballs, right? Um, there's, a, there's a sort of centering in terms of um, valuing uh, the meat thing. And everything else is kind of a side dish. And so to the extent that the plant-based um, meat producers were wanting their products to be in that center place, um, they didn't want to be required not to be able to label their products using those meat terms, right? And it, you can even sort of get that when you think about it, right? Um, a plant-based burger sounds a lot different from a plant-based disc, Right. You don't really think of that as a thing that you want to eat, plant based protein disc. Um, so in a way, they're sort of fighting for a thing that seems to be an attractive term to the American consumer. And so under those kinds of challenges and which have been primarily successful, um, they ended up getting a few of those laws struck down. But these are still in development. And in fact, my paper is already out of date because I think there's um, a few states that have already either enacted laws, and um, and I, sorry, I apologize in that I haven't kept track of the exact status, but it's, it, the, the landscape has already changed significantly since I wrote this article. So when states go to try to regulate the use of the term meat in this context, what kind of rationale do legislators tend to provide for these kinds of regulations? Well, they have to provide something basically to they have to provide a rationale that survives um, some of the First Amendment jurisprudence on um, sort of commercial speech in terms of compelled speech, right? Because this is compelling a commercial producer to use a ter- certain term or not use a certain term. And so what courts have found is that there needs to be a reasonable fit between what the state is wanting to do and what it's requiring people to do. And the grounds that states are using to say we need to restrict the use of the meat-based term to only livestock-based meats is consumer confusion. That is, they're suggesting that consumers are getting these plant-based burgers and thinking that they are actually livestock-based burgers. Um, That has been something that's been fairly rejected by courts because they say they're plant-based burgers. That's already on the label. There's no hiding of the ball there on the part of the meat-based, of the plant-based meat manufacturers. In fact, that's part of the appeal they're relying upon, which is that they're not actually based on livestock. So that's it's a weird kind of rationale um, that states are using, but arguably it's the only really rationale that they can use because a lot of these sort of food-based claims um, in terms of compelled speech, in terms of food labels, are usually premised on either avoiding consumer confusion, avoiding fraud, avoiding misleading the consumer. I mean, it seemed to me after reading your paper that at least on some level, to the extent that there is 
any kind of quote unquote consumer confusion, it seems like it would be best characterized as like confusion, as it were, about what can now constitute the main dish in a meal. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, and um, and that I'm not sure presents enough of a safety protection, right? Um, rationale for to justify um, compelled commercial speech, right? I mean, if there is comes on it, um, because that doesn't seem like there's any kind of fraud that's being placed on a consumer. Consumers can sort of make their various choices about what to put in the center of their meal. Are there reasons for livestock producers to be concerned about potential competition from these alternative meat products? I mean, have they seen any of that competition yet or are they projecting it in the future? Could that be motivating some of these bills? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've already seen um, a cut, a lot of um, market research in terms of um, livestock based meats suggests that American quote unquote, um, well, livestock based meat consumption has gone down um, or at least has been undercut by um, the sort of plant based meat industry. And a lot of polls of um, consumers who claim to be omnivorous suggest that a greater portion of their diet is starting to incorporate plant-based meats. So I, I can see there being sort of an actual concern of threat there. And that's not even to get into the self-cultured meats, right? Because um, the plant-based meat products, yes, I think they get close to the feel, mouthfeel so mouth of livestock-based um, meat products, but um, they're not perfect, right? You can sometimes still tell the difference depending on how much or little ketchup you put on a burger or something, um, you know, how much you drown it in sauce. Um, but um, with the actual cell cultured um, meats, those are, they're going to be made of the same stuff, basically, right, as the um, livestock-based meats. So what's the current kind of state of the science when it comes to cultured meat products. Is there kind of a sense of in the future, what the kind of price point for them will hopefully be? And I guess one thing, I I don't know if you know any better than I do about this, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. I mean, is there a possibility that like cultured meat products could eventually like be better than livestock meat products? I can't tell. I mean, arguably, if you can have cell cultured meat products, you can do a lot of different things, right? Um, like, so you can have basically more tailored structuring of meats. Right now, the way it works is you culture certain types of cells and you grow them on what's called a lattice. And the lattice is used to give the stringy fibrousness, fibrousness that we sort of associate with livestock-based meats. Um you could do more, right? You can sort of, you know, imagine the fine marbling of a nice steak. Um, that often takes a certain way of raising steaks and it sort of increases the cost of steaks. If you had a fully developed sort of cell cultured technologies, you could grow it marbled, right? Um, so you could arguably make a sort of higher quality, the way that we view quality in um, livestock based meats, a lot higher quality sort of cell cultured meat and just sort of generate that as a product. So um, so there's a possibility of that. The price point is still way out of everyone's price point right now. And so this is not anything coming up 
think in the next two years, I'm going to flag that because apparently Singapore just approved the marketing of a cell, I think it's like a cell cultured chicken product. Um, and I haven't heard anything about the sort of tests, um, the market tests of that. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we will see, at least on the chicken side of things, um, cell cultured chicken out um, available soon. But um, at least on the sort of cow side, um, that seems to be, we're still seeing a little bit further away on that. I mean, in fairness, in fairness, chicken nuggets seem pretty close to cultured meat products already yeah, to me. So, I actually, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but I, I actually prefer plant based chicken because I think it's moisture in terms of chicken nuggets. So if I'm going to go for a chicken nugget. I'm going to go for a plant based chicken nugget because they're just not as dry. Well, so one thing that struck me as well when reading the paper, especially in relation to the sort of litigation over the use of the term meat, was that it seemed like there was clearly the kind of potential for competition-based concerns motivating this this uh, legislation. But I couldn't help but wondering if you think that there's also like a kind of a political or even an ideological undercurrent to some of this legislation as well. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, I can see the sort of um, and I talk about that a little bit at the beginning of my paper. We associate the term meat with a lot of different qualities, right? Um, I trace times where we've associated meat eating with vigor, with Americanness, with sort of nationalism. And um, to see that being undercut by things called meat that are plant based um, could be offensive to some. And I can see that underlying, you know, some of the sort of rationales, not stated rationales, um, because that can't really factor into the First Amendment test, but um, sort of the actual rationales of legislators who have been sponsoring that legislation. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the legislation you're mentioning in the paper kind of is mostly seems to be emanating from, quote unquote, redder states, as it were. Now, I mean, granted, that could just be an association with livestock production, but there's there's a kind of blue state, red state quality to it in some ways to me, it seems like. Yeah, no, I think that's true, though I do think that it's, again, complicated because of the sort of um, lives where the livestock production centers are. My evidence for this is that in one state that I discuss, um, I think it was Arkansas, um, Arkansas also included in its labeling bill um, the restriction of the use of the term rice um, from being used for cauliflower rice and all that other stuff. And Arkansas has a lot of rice fields. There are a lot of rice farmers in Arkansas. So that suggests to me that it's not simply um, some kind of cultural thing, because I don't think we have any strong American cultural associations with rice and vigor and nationalism or anything, but rather just, you know, this sort of industry kind of protection. So one thing that was interesting about the kind of historical story you tell about this kind of regulation as well, is that ironically, it seems like the ability of states and the federal government to regulate food labor labeling in similar ways was seen as being pretty broad. And there's a kind of way in which um, the sort of newfound robustness of the First Amendment in the commercial speech area has really benefited a lot of these alternative meat producers in relation to this labeling question specifically. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting kind of 
irony that you're pointing to, because in terms of if we have like sort of red, blue associations with things, we kind of maybe associate um, vegetarians or plant-based meat product eaters with being more blue. Um, And so it's sort of ironic that, and, and yet we also associate some of the sort of quote unquote, new First Amendment jurisdiction with being maybe more conservative, it seems interesting that it's sort of helpful to plant-based meat manufacturers um, in this area. Well, so in your paper, you also kind of offer some cautionary words for alternative meat producers around this very issue and sort of their use or push to use the term meat in relation to their products. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your concerns or things that you think people ought to keep in mind going forward in thinking about regulation in this space, but also kind of in their own product labeling and the way they talk about their products and and what it is they're selling and why they're selling it. Yeah, I mean, I think the cautionary part is that um, if you look at sort of folks who are both vegetarian advocates or even sort of sustainable consumption advocates um, prior to this new wave of very, um, very strongly mimicking livestock based meat, meat products. um, There was a bit of a push to just decenter protein um, from the diet. Um, And so in a way, this is sort of buying into the centering of protein as sort of the um, centerpiece of a meal. And that's not necessarily great for, in a broader way, sustainable agriculture. Sure, livestock tends to have greater sort of greenhouse gas emissions and sort of greater environmental footprint than sort of plant-based kind of products. Um, But at the same time, there's a lot of other plant-based things that don't contribute to, that aren't as protein heavy, that have an even lighter kind of footprint. And so arguably, um, this might be a sort of second best solution if you think of changing um, consumption patterns as a solution. Um, And that sort of Instead, encouraging consumers to think about their consumption in an even broader fashion that doesn't always highlight protein um, might be um, an even more um, forceful step. Yeah, I mean, it struck me that there's a way in which the sort of imperatives of the market sort of recuperate or reify a lot of these efforts to offer alternative ways of thinking about eating by encouraging people to use the same words and the same rhetoric and the same kind of perspectives in terms of how they characterize uh, what people are eating and why they're eating it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steph, thanks so much for coming on the program to talk about your paper. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I'm really interested now to see what happens with all of these different products in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me on your program. It was fun to talk about the paper. I'm honored to have an opportunity to talk about the paper. And um, I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. Don't take no lean meat. Just-
Let's try some fat meat. It's good, good, good. I'm telling you, bud, don't be an old dud. If you're a hip cat, you like your meat bad. You ought to know that it's good, good, good. Is driving me mad. Got a feeling that I've never had. For every morning I wake up and say, What are we having for dinner today? I get an answer, and what does she say? Fat mean, chop mean, stew mean, rib mean. But I'd rather have fat meat. Fat meat is good meat. Fat meat is Just try some fat meat, it's good, good, good. 